Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another edition of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1. You can read me on Bleacher Report. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker. Uh, as noted, we have gone to a schedule that is a little more inconsistent than our usual Monday through Friday uh, for July, the rest of July and August. We're trying to come to you about three days a week. Uh, we've got some vacation coming up for Will Blackman, Ryan Hollins, and myself. So we will try to be as consistent as we possibly can. Uh, appreciate you bearing with us. Um, this is being recorded after Summer League, uh, the Las Vegas Summer League. hasn't concluded, but my time there has. It also is coming right after the deal uh, with the Houston Rockets sending Chris Paul and a couple of first-round picks to the Oklahoma City Thunder for Russell Westbrook. Now, I had a producer text me right after the trade went down. Uh taking Chris Paul and his monstrous contract off the Rockets' hands in exchange for taking Russ Westbrook and his monstrous contract off the Thunder's hands. And by the way, any other interpretation of the deal than that is a departure from reality. But we'll get to that in a minute. The text read, I love the NBA. And I understand why he would text that. I love it too. And partly for the same reason. Uh, the producer didn't elaborate. But being in the media business, new and startling moves are always welcome. They provide talking points and topics, and that provides fresh content. Content, And we're always looking for fresh content. Which, before I continue about the trade, I'd like to make a point to whoever out there believes those of us on TV say things just to create headlines and draw attention to ourselves. And I guess I bring this up in part because... Uh, we've had all these moves uh, uh, over the course of free agency and I, along with others, have had to take positions on what we think is going to happen, predicting what's going to happen. And I've seen it said, I don't, you never know from social media how many people are thinking this way, but I saw it more than a few times. So I'd like to address it. Now, there certainly are some analysts or show hosts who do indeed like to stir the pot or elicit a reaction. 
I work with a few of them. But I don't know of a single one that says something just to elicit a reaction. They may know what they're going to say will bother people, but that's not the initial impetus. They truly believe what they're saying. But Skip Bayless believed that Tim Tebow was an NFL quarterback and could be a successful one. He believes that Kawhi Leonard did the San Antonio Spurs wrong. Now, he's holding on to that to the bitter end in spite of everything, but it's the way he truly feels. I could say the same for Jason Whitlock and his positions. Colin Cowherd, the same. They may be, may be provocative, but I can tell you firsthand, they believe in what they are saying. They're saying it because they think it needs to be said. Now, that applies to hosts. For analysts like myself, you're giving us credit for control we really don't have if you think that we are saying things just to draw attention to ourselves. When I appear on a show, I meet with a producer beforehand. I'm presented with the topics the host wants to hit, and then I tell them what I plan to say. Now... I've dedicated my career to seeing sports not as a fan, but from that of the participants, be they GMs or owners or players or coaches or officials or whoever, people inside the game. I want to see things from their viewpoint, viewpoint so I can share that. And I marry that with my own values and principles, especially now that I'm doing more than just analysis. I'm given more room to give my opinion and not just on the NBA. So I, I might provide new information when I'm on a show, but that's not my first aim. My first aim is to provide a new perspective. Now this may come as a surprise to some of you, and the more obstinate of you will just refuse to believe this to be true, but I don't know what's going to go viral or become the topic of other network shows or cause a bunch of other outlets to build a headline around what I've said. Some things that I expect to cause a stir or be seen as big news aren't or prove not to be, while others catch me completely off guard when they blow up. Now, the latter is generally because what I've say, said is taken out of context. Somebody sees something juicy and they put that in a headline and they don't necessarily use the rest of what I said because what I found is the things that go viral are things that I've said on a talk show be they radio or TV and obviously I'm on there for minimum 10-15 minutes to take one statement out of that and make it a headline chances are it's going to be taken out of context and then this goes for stuff that I've written too the story, my story about the yin and yang of playing with LeBron, which ran back in December, I think it was, uh, in which Kevin Durant talked about the toxic environment around LeBron created by his fanboys in the media is a perfect example. I actually thought other outlets would steer clear of that comment when I wrote it because it was an accusation directed at them. I mean, I knew that it was, I knew that it was a, a bold statement by KD, but I thought because it was directed at the media, the media might shy away from it. Or if they did address it, they would attack KD by suggesting that it reflected his sensitivity or jealousy. 
uh, around the attention that LeBron gets. Instead, the whole fanboys in the media, and let's be clear, there are LeBron fangirls in the media too, that was cut. And the question of whether LeBron created a toxic environment became the talking point, which wasn't really the point of Katie's comment or how I used it in the piece. And it wasn't what the piece was about at all. But that's what became the thing drawn from it the most. Bottom line is that when I go on a show, I don't get to pick the topics. And even when I'm told the topics beforehand, I don't know how they're going to be broached or what question is going to be asked. Or even if we're going to hit those particular topics. I get surprised all the time. Subjects and topics that weren't part of the pre-show discussion are thrown at me. Uh, Colin Cowherd on The Herd asking, My friend Bill Simmons told me the KD going to the Knicks is a done deal. What are you hearing? I wasn't told about that going into the show. (laughs) No, were we going to talk about KD? Absolutely. But to have it framed that way is an example. I wouldn't have used done deal if Colin hadn't used it and presented the question that way. But the truth is, what I'd been hearing was uniform and that KD was headed for the Knicks. If I'm answering that honestly, I'm hearing that it's a done deal. What are you hearing? My answer was, I'm hearing it's a done deal too. Now, that gets boiled down to, Bucher says it's a done deal that, that, that KD is going to the Knicks. Eh, not exactly. Not exactly what I said or intended to say. It's what I was hearing, and I was hearing it, and I was saying done deal in relation to something that had already been said. And I don't use Bill Simmons as the be-all and the end-all by any stretch, (laughs) which again is like in context with Bill, a non-NBA reporter, uh, hearing something, and what am I hearing? Anyway, I don't want to belabor this, but... That's what everyone in the league I spoke to at that time anticipated. Did I know there was a possibility that something could happen that might change KD's mind? Absolutely. And if I thought that the people I were talking to had an agenda to put that out there, I would have taken that into consideration and said it a different way. I've long said that the most important tool anyone in the media can have is a good bull detector. That's more important now than ever that it's become so acceptable to use information from sources, people who don't have to publicly put their names on that information now, uh, it's easier for, for someone with an agenda to get something out in the public without having to pay a price for it being wrong. And please understand, I don't know of anybody in the media who just makes up information. Again, I don't know how many people actually believe that that happens, but I think there's a healthy number out there. Look, it doesn't happen. Not that I know of. Is there an exception? I'm sure there's always an exception. We've had, we've had people caught out who did make up stories, made up stories whole cloth. But actually, when it comes to reporting on the NBA, it's not necessary. If you believe something, you can just say, all right, it's hard to imagine Chris Paul will actually ever play in OKC, as I tweeted out after the trade. Now, that's not a report. That's an informed opinion or educated guess. Some of you may hold it against me and take it as a report, but then I think you're just trolls. 
Here's the second part to why there isn't a need to simply make something up and attribute it to a source. If you've spent any time covering the league, you can text or call someone who works in the league for a team at some level and get a response from them that you can attribute to a source. And if you just want to make it look like you're plugged in or have information, that will do it. Now, anybody who thinks a writer or reporter comes up with ideas on their own and wants them to be taken as fact for some reason, well, what's the reason? What's the point? Like We're just trying to get something out there that is titillating? I've already told you we can't control what draws attention and what doesn't. And the, the flip side of that, putting crazy things out there that don't have any chance of happening, you don't last long in the business. That, that's, the, that's the reality of it. You, you look like you don't know what you're talking about if you're going to put, put things out there. Now, you can get things from people in the league. Sometimes I wonder <laughs> how they're necessarily, they continue to have jobs in the league. But nonetheless, the point is, it's a cool conspiracy theory, I guess, but ultimately it doesn't really fly. It's one of those conspiracy theories that doesn't really hold up. Besides, anybody who is really after attention by saying or writing something, wouldn't they do it on their own social media feed or under their byline, not on someone else's radio or TV show or podcast? And as I said, my experience is most of the things that become viral or bigger than life that I've experienced that have happened with me have happened on radio or TV shows or podcasts where a snippet is taken out of a longer conversation. Because if you give the longer conversation, it doesn't have quite the same sizzle. I say all this because I came to realize the other day that the media critics out there have never actually had a conversation with someone who works in the media, especially on a national level. And that's understandable in a way. There are a lot of critics out there and there are only so many of us. But it would be the same as me ripping how a heart surgery was performed without ever talking to the surgeon or knowing anything about how heart surgeries in general are performed. I can do it based on how I judge the outcome of the surgery, but it's a total crapshoot as to whether or not my criticism is valid. And actually, a better comparison might be watching someone do something I think I'm actually capable of doing. Working as a bartender, for example. If your drink tastes funny or it's too weak or takes too long to mate, it's automatically the bartender's fault, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. But what if he or she is, say, they're under orders to pour light by the owner or the manager or the bar's mixes are inferior or somebody left them out or uh, the manager just did a poor job of training the damn barkeep. Whose fault is it then? A lot of people. That's it. So, back to explaining the Oklahoma City Thunder trading one pricey point guard for another. Or the Houston Rockets dealing their point guard with a fiery personality and demanding style for one not all that different. And the answer is simple. It isn't personal. It's business. Now, some will interpret this move as proof that there really was a beef between Chris Paul and James Harden, which GM Daryl Morey vehemently denied. But let's be real. CP3's best relationship is probably with Cole Perez, his State Farm 
insurance agent. Harden and Paul even had a beef in the commercial, for God's sake, when Harden blows up Paul's kitchen, reheating that Chinese food. And as an aside, and I hate to go on another tangent, but I've reheated quite a bit of food in my day, and I don't know that I've ever reheated fast food. And I consider Chinese takeout to be that. And I certainly haven't brought it home and eaten it out of the little cardboard container. Not, not for a long time. If ever. Honestly, when it comes to Chinese food. Now, I get that you needed the wire handle to make the microwave blow up in the commercial and for that whole thing to work. I'm just saying. And yes, I probably spend too much time thinking about inconsequential-ish like this. As a second aside, apparently at one point, the State Farm commercial with the robo-agent crying fake tears was shown more than any commercial, even more than the one about the Andersons getting tickets. Which, I have to say, I dreaded more than any commercial in the history of watching commercials. None have left a mark on me like that one. Uh, And the bit that I learned is that at one point, that Anderson's commercial was being shown 45 and a half times on average a day. Good Lord. All right, enough with these sides. So back to this curious deal between the Thunder and the Rockets that everybody got all worked up about that doesn't really change anything. Does it make the Rockets better? Maybe. Very possibly not. Does it make them a greater threat to win the West, especially in light of the Clippers, Lakers, Blazers, and Jazz all making moves that should demonstrably make them better? No. So what was really accomplished? Well, Daryl Morey looks like he's doing something. He changes the equation. Now, on on the face of it, the Thunder traded away a younger, more athletic, more endearing point guard for an older one who can't do nearly as much and isn't likely to do so moving forward. But as I said, it's not personal. It's business. In the short term, Thunder save $5 million next season and are on the hook for one year and $47 million less dollars. Long term. Paul has three years and $124 million left on his deal, while Westbrook has four years and $171 million, although the last year is a player option. But at 30, you'd say Westbrook is more likely to have some value near the end of his deal, while Paul isn't worth the $38.5 million he's due to make next season now. Now, I can't imagine that Sam Presti, the Thunder GM, made this deal without knowing he has a place to send Paul. The question is, can he get anything back or is it going to cost him to move him along? Now, if it costs him, he can still make that work. He's gotten all kinds of first-round picks from moving Paul George, Jeremy Grant, and now Westbrook since the end of the season. He has some room to work with. It doesn't make any sense that you're taking on that money, though, uh, for a 34-year-old point guard in a rebuilding situation. And it's just not like Sam to make a move like this. The problem is in asking around, you know, there's a healthy number of people that are saying that Chris Paul contract is not movable. And I'm thinking, well, (laughs) that proved otherwise just now. I mean, they were able to move it. However, it was for Westbrook and it did cost a couple of picks to move it. I would think it might cost the same. In which case, I look, he can move it. 
he'll be able to move Chris Paul along. It just might cost him a pick. And I could see the Miami Heat being one of those places that would be willing to do it. But if you're sending something along with it, and you're not asking for a whole lot back, other than maybe cap relief, like a Goran Dragic contract, uh, then why wouldn't Miami Heat, the Miami Heat do it? Yes, you're on the hook for a couple of years. Yes, you have to take on that contract. But I just get the sense that Pat Riley right now isn't worrying about down the road at all. It's more being relevant right now. I don't think he's going to do anything crazy. I don't know that uh, the Heat uh, ownership would allow him to do anything that would severely handcuff them down the road. But I also imagine that they want to be somewhat relative in the short term right now. And, and the thing is, if you make a deal for Jimmy Butler, then you're, what's the point? Jimmy Butler makes you a little bit better, but does he make you, does he really move the needle all that much? I don't think so. It hasn't proved that he can on his own. So, uh, the other part with CP, uh, I, I can't imagine him wanting to play in Oklahoma City. He's not the mentoring type, and I'm sure, despite his diminishing skills, that he still has an eye on playing for a championship somewhere. And you may look at the Miami Heat with Jimmy and Chris Paul and say, well, it, we don't see enough there. But the bottom line is, they're closer. It is Miami. And you do have Pat Riley being able to sell you that he knows how to make one. Uh, a championship team, that is. So he can still dream if he goes there. He can't dream if he's in Oklahoma City. It's the reaction to the Rockets' end of the deal that I find most fascinating, though. Daryl Morey, the Rockets' GM, is once again being lauded as a genius, or at least a winner in the deal in the stories that I read shortly after the trade went down. Now, that wasn't what I got back texting various scouts and executives and former players to get their takes on the deal shortly after it went down. From one chaos to another, said one scout, going to be ugly and selfish basketball. That was his description of Russ and James playing together. Arrogant retards masquerading as geniuses, said a personnel director. After the trade, This is him still continuing. After the trade, they still have two guys who need the ball in their hands, referencing Russ and James basically being the same as James and Chris Paul. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Now, Las Vegas disagrees, which I have to say is eroding my faith in the odds makers. I usually believe, hey, they've got money at stake. When anybody has money at stake, they're going to do their best to know what's going on. But in this case, I'm not so sure. Is Russ Westbrook a, a better player than Chris Paul right now? There's no arguing that. But that doesn't make the Rockets a better team. Paul is actually easier to read and play off than Westbrook by a long shot. Westbrook, I've come to the conclusion, is just not a natural playmaker, and I'm not sure that he ever will be. I used to think it was that he wasn't, simply because he could overwhelm opponents, opponents with his athleticism, which is why finding a balance between getting his and getting someone else was uh, getting else someone else set up was a struggle for him. In that, it was so easy for him to get to the rim or get a clean look that getting his wasn't a selfish choice; it was the right one. He was the anti-LeBron in that respect, in my mind. LeBron still defers at times, though not as much as he used to, when he has the ability to get the last shot. Both of them have, arguably, the greatest physical advantage of any two players in the league. And, but all but the most blindly loyal LeBron fans know this. It used to be he didn't want the responsibility of taking the last shot, or a big shot. And now I get the sense it's more out of conserving his energy, but it's the same deal. He'll take the last shot, but he won't necessarily work for the best one or feel that it's incumbent upon him to take it. His pass to George Hill in game one of the finals last year with four point seconds left is a perfect example. LeBron was being guarded by Steph Curry at the top of the arc. Now that's a matchup the team specifically runs screens to create. Now the Warriors were zoned up behind Curry, but still, the idea would be to draw two defenders and then find the open man. Not just try to hit Hill cutting to the basket through that zone behind Curry, which is what LeBron did. And for those who don't remember, LeBron's bullet pass sailed right past Hill and out of bounds. Now, a foul was called on Klay Thompson, and that sent Hill to the line to shoot for two free throws, for which he missed. But George Hill was surprised that that bullet pass came his way. And I don't know that the foul actually prevented him from catching it. I think his shock that... LeBron would be looking to him to make the game-winning play did. Now, Russ would not have tried such a pass. If he had the ball and he had a matchup he liked, he would have tried to weave his way to the basket. He would have hoisted the three. He would have driven past Steph and before the zone could close, pull up for a mid-range. You know it, I know it, and the defense knows it. They just couldn't do anything about him getting the shot off. That's why I didn't have a problem with Russ shooting. Because that's the goal in these situations. To get a shot. You idealists out there, well, we got to get the best shot. We got to get the highest percentage shot. Yeah. Real life at the end of games doesn't work that way. You're ideally looking for the best shot. But in most cases, simply getting a good look at the basket, no matter where it's from, is an accomplishment. It has more to do with who do you want taking that shot. Now you can say, well, Russ doesn't shoot the ball all that well. You're right. 
And that made it a catch-22. But he could always get his shot. And he could always get it without having to give the ball up. Attempts to get the best shot, if it involves the ball-changing hands, adds the risk of a shot never being taken. LeBron's pass to George Hill being Exhibit A. That isn't an opinion, that's a fact. It's why having a go-to guy who isn't a guard or someone who can bring the ball up means you don't have a go-to guy. Joel Embiid would be my go-to guy for the 76ers. Except I can't have him bring the ball up, and now i got to work to get him the ball. And defensively, I can make it difficult. I can run the clock down, force you to run the clock down in working to get the ball to him and where he gets it. I can do a lot of things defensively to dictate what happens. Harder for me to do that when the ball's already in the hands of the guy that you ideally want to take that shot. Now, there's another assumption here that I'm not quite getting. I'm not sure where where it comes from. And that's that this is some glorious reunion for Russ and James, that they they are going to be buddies in a way that by all indications James and Chris Paul were not uh, it's as if as if Russ and James are like fast friends who have longed to play together for a long time yes they're both from the LA area yes Harden spent his first three seasons in the league playing with West Westbrook in Oklahoma City but their personalities aren't particularly similar and I've never known them to go out of their way to hang out together they're not, you know, banana co- banana boat crew too. And on the court, they were such an odd fit that Harden came off the bench the first two years. Actually, he came off the bench all three years in Oklahoma City. And the first two years, his minutes played in terms of two-man combinations were fourth and fifth. He played more minutes with Ibaka and Nick Collison than he did Westbrook. And even in the last year there, his minutes, the Harden minutes, the Harden-Westbrook combination didn't play anywhere as many minutes as the Harden-Durant combination. Now, as I might have mentioned, I think I might have mentioned this. It's not personal, it's business. If the Rockets came back with the same crew this year, it wouldn't have drawn any attention it might have appeared as if they weren't trying to do anything. Now, I believe that continuity would have served them better. But it wouldn't have drawn the praise moving CP3 for Westbrook has. This makes the Rockets a story going into the season, and stories sell. No one knows that better than Maury. The move may not make them better, and it could very well make them worse. But it does make them interesting. And interesting sells, and interesting for a GM can often give you more time to actually build something that works. It sells tickets, and it makes you look like you are working and trying new things, and some owners are in on that, as opposed to somebody who says, just be patient. Hard to sell tickets or sponsorships, endorsements, or any of that when you're bringing the same old back, even if it's better from a basketball perspective. All right. Uh, As I mentioned, the Las Vegas Summer League is is not over, but it is for me. And 
going to give you a quick general review or overview of who stood out, whose performance raised some questions, and what the biggest takeaways were for me from the three days uh, that I spent watching games there. Now, one, the most exciting player, hands down, was Jackson Hayes of the Pelicans. Now, keep in mind, Jackson had to watch the first couple of days because he hadn't yet yet signed his contract because of the because he was involved in the trade. Originally, it was uh, a draft pick that the Atlanta Hawks owned, and because of all the machinations, he had to wait a couple of days before he could play. I don't know if he missed one or two games, but he certainly didn't play at the start. And he came in with a lot of pent up energy. Um, I had a chance to talk to him a little bit afterward, and if you saw, he received a tech for slapping the backboard after his first dunk. And he said to me afterward that he, that he had warned the coaching staff that he was probably going to do that because he was so hyped. Uh, his uh, agility was on display at both ends, particularly as a rim protector. And at one point, he blocked a shot with his elbow. He also, he, he just went over, can't remember who it was, but he, he caught one and dunked and uh, it was impressive. The height, it was, a, it was impressive. Now, he also went two for seven from the free throw line. Uh, this was while I was watching. I don't know if that was his final for the game. And he really didn't do a whole lot other than finish plays at the rim offensively. But he did play through contact to score more than once, which is a very promising sign. He's a skinny dude, and there were some questions about his strength, and he is going to be fun to watch. He's stronger than he looks, and maybe that shouldn't be surprising since Dad was an NFL tight end for the Chiefs and Steelers, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of good signs there. Now, the Pelicans' third pick, Nikel Alexander-Walker from Virginia Tech, actually impressed me more than either Jackson or the number one pick, Zion Williamson, and if you've heard me talk about Zion, you know that I've been saying that all the comparisons to LeBron and the expectation that he's going to be a transformative player, man, if you didn't see how far he has to go in his first game, aside from not being in shape, he's got limitations. And I thought it was not a good sign at all that he took a mid-range pull-up, that he airballed, he shot a three. Like, dude... Stay within your game. Clearly, the I'm supposed to be the next LeBron is affecting Zion and how he's approaching the game. Do what you do best. Let the rest of your game develop. That's exactly what Blake Griffin did. And now he's got three-point range. Now he's got a mid-range jump shot. But the role that he had to play, he was a dunker. And he basically told me last spring, he said, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to show that I was a complete player, but I also knew what my strengths were and how I fit into the team. Now, I'm sure Zion can get all this. This is We're judging all this off of, what, half a one NBA Summer League game. And, yeah, it's disappointing that they shut him completely down. I can't help but feel that that wasn't because the knee injury was all that bad as much as it was, you know what, dude's not in shape. And the chances that he could hurt himself worse because he's not in shape make this a bad bet. So, also, it's probably going to be the more we saw of him, the more we're going to realize the limitations of his game at this point. 
That's not a good selling point. Back to Nikel Alexander-Walker. He impressed the hell out of me. And hey, taking 17th, I still will be surprised if he isn't part of the regular rotation. I mean, he has a complete, not star necessarily, but he shoots a deep three, he can handle the ball, he moves off the ball well, and he can defend his position. And honestly, not sure I can say that definitively about Zion or Jackson at this point. We'll see. Now, there were a host of other guys who also stood out for a variety of reasons, but I don't know how much of what they will uh, I don't know how much of what they did will translate to what happens this fall, or even if they get a chance to find out because of one flaw or another. Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat showed he can score and create shots, but can he defend his, his position? Don't know. Not sure. Uh, he has the makings of a really good 3 and D guy, and so the D part is important. Carson Edwards, Celtic second-round pick, Shot the ball extremely well. Showed the poise of a 21-year-old. He was a floor leader, no question. You might expect that. Spent three years at Purdue. But he's got some Fred Van Vliet qualities. Question is, can he be efficient in short minutes, which is what he's likely to see with Kemba Walker in Boston. That's a whole different challenge. When you're only taking three or four shots and you cannot turn the ball over at all and you need to get the team into your into your offense, and you're probably setting up other guys as much as you're setting up yourself. Whole different animal. He's also, uh, you know, I'm not body shaming here, but he is noticeably bow-legged and stocky and strong. I just wonder, when you see somebody have a physical distinction like that, especially lower half, I just wonder, How's he going to hold up to the, the, the pounding of the NBA? The speed of the NBA? Because it's grinding, guys. Ain't no question. I mean, it may sound funny, but an 82-game schedule will test your body composition. Ask Greg Oden or Jaleel Okafor or Brandon Roy. I know those, you know, the first two are bigs, but you get my point. It's funny. The player that most impressed me or just stood out was a point guard for the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Josh Majet, if I'm pronouncing his last name. Well, that's the way it was pronounced at the Las Vegas Summer League, although that's no guarantee because uh, their announcers don't always necessarily do their homework. And I guess I'm exposing that I didn't either. Anyway, I'd never heard of him before, even though he played about 18 games with the Hawks a year or two ago. He's listed as 6'1". I'd guess he's about 170, uh, 170 pounds was the smallest, frailest guy on the floor almost every game. But he played like a consummate pro. I mean, he ran the team as well as any team I saw run. Which makes sense once I looked at his background, because he's, he's 29 and he's played all over Europe, most recently in the Spanish League. But he did all the little things effectively, despite his size. And Reminded me, in fact, this is what stood out about Brandon Roy, speaking of, of him, is when he came in, he immediately, he controlled the game. Game was played at his pace, and he got everybody in their places, and it was very, it was remarkable. You see, That's the exception, not the rule, when you see guards, particularly point guards, coming into the league, uh, and, and in summer league. It's a, it's a big leap, and you got 
disparate parts and you got guys coming from different uh, programs and got guys who've probably been stars in their places and now you got to make everything work and everybody put everybody in their sweet spot. But Bajet, Bajet did all that. I mean, he, despite his size, he boxed out, he defended. I thought for sure, like they would just be able to exploit him size-wise. Couldn't do it. Uh, thought he would get muscled and wouldn't be able to get to where he needed to on the floor. He knew how to give himself space. He knew how to attack. He knew how to move the ball early so that he wouldn't get uh, overwhelmed. Uh, he scored from the paint, scored from long range. And my point in, in raising all this, I, I doubt that he's going to be on the roster during the regular season, but when you watch someone that size manipulate the game the way he did, it makes you realize realize how far guys like R.J. Barrett and Kobe White have to go. That whatever they might be getting done, whether they got done at the, at the college level or whatever they might even accomplish in summer league, it's, dude, you need to be able to marry your physical skills, which is probably, again, why Majette won't be in the league. Because you now, when you get to the NBA especially a point guard. You've got guys who have the physical assets and they have the mental ability and understanding of the game. So R.J. Barrett and Kobe White, they both had their moments, but they also had their share of forced plays uh, and they showed that they used their superior athleticism and size uh, and that's what allowed them to make them play, to make plays up to this. And then faced by equal athletic talent or size. It's a question as to whether they're making those same plays. So, uh, the Summer League is not only over for me, but I'm also a bit over it. It's taken me 15 years, but, and I'll still go, and I'll still, every time I get ready to go, I'll think, man, it's great. I'm going to Summer League. I'm going to Vegas. I'm going to Summer League. And then as soon as I land, it's like, oh, I'm in Vegas. How long am I here? And going over and I, look, I love seeing all the games. I, it's, it's not work. I mean, it's, I love it. Absolutely love it. But I've been attending it since the very first year in 2004 when there were six NBA teams. And if I remember correctly, uh, player agents would put together teams of clients who were free agents to showcase them in those early years. They did anything to kind of fill out the schedule so that the the NBA teams were just beating each other up uh, and they could have some sort of uh, a run. And of course, now all 30 NBA teams participate. Every game's televised. Some of the games draw damn near 20,000 fans. I mean, that's that's great for the league. It's just not great for my purposes. Because it used to be, I could sit in the stands. They had There's sections that are reserved and then were reserved for media and NBA personnel. And I could sit there, walk up into the stands. I'd be surrounded by coaches and GMs. We could chat about a variety of topics through the course of watching their guys. You could pick their brains about what we were seeing in front of us, what was going on around the league, the whole deal. And now, GMs and coaches generally only come in to watch their teams play. And Warren Legary, the agent who started the Vegas League, will, if he sees them up in the stands, will escort them to courtside seats and put a security guard behind them 
sucks. And and even if a GM or coach opts to sit in the stands in the reserve section, the media and the Thomas and Mack Center are prohibited from sitting in the same section by order of Legary, a security guard told me. So thank you, Warren. Not. Look, in one way I understand. The league issued nearly a thousand media credentials this year, so I'm told. So the ratio has changed rather dramatically from the early days, too. I was one of a handful of writers who made the trek in the early days, just as I did to Pete Newell's big man camp. The other change is that I get the sense the media is scouting the media now, watching who is talking to who. And since so much of what we do is sourced and I want to protect my sources, I don't really like being seen talking to anyone in a position of authority, even if no one can else if no one else can hear the actual conversation. So, there are still events that you can attend and not worry about who is watching or listening, but they've changed. Uh, there's a tech summit in the Bay Area that a lot of players attend. Uh, that's one. I couldn't go this year because it conflicted with a prior commitment, but I'm determined to be there next year. All right, that does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United WeCast Network. Again, uh, appreciate all of your ratings and reviews especially the five stars. We're very thankful and glad that you are enjoying the show. Uh, if you haven't rated the show, please do so. And if you want to be uh, eligible to win some prizes, screenshot the review and send it to at Friends. doesn't have to be five stars. can be whatever you think is appropriate. Uh, love hearing from you as well, so please leave a comment. But uh, in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,